0: You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 7th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Evan Burke from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled... What I know of Butler's story is this, Lady Ranelagh's transmutation history.
1: Catherine Boyle was born in Ireland on the 22nd of March 1615 and was the seventh child of Richard Boyle, the first Earl of Cork. Catherine married Arthur Jones in April 1630, thus becoming uh, Lady Ranelagh. However, her marriage to Arthur was not a happy one and when the 1641 rebellion broke out, Catherine moved to London to escape the trouble while her husband stayed in Ireland. When in London, her class and her connections allowed her to exert influence on the political scene, and within two years of moving to the city, she was introduced to Samuel Hartlib, and quickly became involved in all aspects of his network. Overall, Lady Ranla is a fascinating woman with a rich corpus of material, including over a hundred letters, multiple recipe books, and even a discourse on the plague. And so her place in the intellectual and political culture of the 17th century is crying out to be investigated in more detail. This paper aims to add to this investigation by looking at one of her letters in detail, her transmutation history. William Newman highlights that the transmutation history was filled with verifiable dates, locations and other circumstantial evidence, and was intended to counter doubt by discussing genuine demonstrations of the Philosopher's Stone. Lawrence Principe adds that many of the texts are painstakingly precise, noting exact times, places, persons, often of rank or station, in attendance, the quantity of gold or silver uh, produced, and so forth. Other treatises focus on the proliferation of greed, highlighting how did the aspiring adepts use up most of their elixir by trying to multiply it, before wasting the rest and slipping into poverty. Early examples of this genre include Michael Sendivogius's Novum Lumum Chemicum, which is 1604, Pierre Borel's Tresor de la Research et Antiquité Galois, 1655, and Arrhenius Philipponus Philatese's The Morrow of Alchemy, Part 1, 1654. And by the middle of the century, it had become a popular genre among intellectuals, especially those within the Hartlep circle. This interest may have been sparked by George Starkey the actual author of The Morrow of Alchemy, who had been introduced to the Hartlib Circle around 1650. Starkey had made a positive impression on many, of mem- on many, mem- on many members, including Hertlib, Benjamin Worsley and Robert Boyle, and by 1653, copies of Starkey's texts entitled Sir George Ripley's Epistle to King Edward Unfolded had began circulating around the network. Aside from Starkey, it was also around this time that other members, including Benjamin Worsley and Frederick Clodius, began to have debates on the various approaches to transmutational alchemy, and Clodius began to copy and circulate alchemical texts, including a co- uh, preparing a copy of the Epistolae Philosophicae and the Statatua Philosophorum Incognitarium for Boyle. Furthermore, by the time Rannellet engaged in this debate, both Sendivogius's Novum Lumum Chemicum and Starkey's The Marrow of Alchemy had been printed and were circulating around the Hartlip circle. So, for instance, in an Ephemides entry in 1655, um, Hartlip not only demonstrates his awareness of Sendivogius, but actually questions whether he was an adept. Monsieur Cham knew Sendivogius' servant, familiarly, who told him how horribly he was afflicted with the gout, without any remedy, insomuch that he fell into fits of blaspheming of God, etc., From whence he concluded that he never had the stone, but he caused another who really had the tincture to be hanged. Instead, Hartlib seemed to have invested his belief in the authenticity of Dr Butler, starting with an interest in the old uh, Druidic culture and subsequent hereditary medical families of Ireland due to Van Helmont's commendation of them in 1650. And some are of the opinion that Ireland had produced as many good and real physicians as that country. Indeed, in all the great families of Ireland, there hath been commonly one that had been a physician. And they have have many rare receipts from them, which by the way of tradition are preserved and imparted from one family to another. Helmond speaks much in commendation of the Irish physicians. In 1652, Hartley wrote two important entries in his ephemerides regarding Butler. In the first, he stated that, Butler, being taken prisoner, he learnt the Alcahest, the philosopher's stone, while in the second he recorded that Colonel Dillon, an Irish man-papist, he told him of Higgins of Limerick that being Butler's man should have gotten all of Butler's arcana. However, between 1652 and 1659, there is no recorded information about Butler by Hartlib, and it is likely that the proliferation of alchemical texts reinvigorated interest in Butler's story. Just one month before Annalis sent her letter, both John Beale and Robert Wood wrote to Hartlib with information on Butler's son. One such reference occurred in a letter from Robert Wood to Hartlib, dated 21st of March, 1659. "I hear there is one Mr. Butler, son to Dr. Butler of Ireland, now, giving, li- now living at Galway. I have wrote to him to the tenor of what you desire, and what answer he returns shall be transmitted uh, to you." By this stage, Ranla had built up a solid rapport with Hartlib regarding the sharing of scientific and medical information. And it is likely that Hartlib approached her due to her upbringing in Ireland and knowledge of Colonel Dillon, the man who told Claudius about Higgins. So in, when Ranla was uh, besieged in 1641, the besieger was actually Colonel Dillon. Um, so that was the link. So Hartlib would have known about her uh, besiegement. And when she went to London and imparted this knowledge to him, that's how she, he might have made the link. Between Dylan and Ranelagh. Furthermore, uh, due to this rapport, Ranelagh knew how Hartlib would have responded if she answered him and preempted this response in the way she structured the narrative. It is likely that Ranelagh knew of the information circulating around the Hartlib circle, as she drew on the interest in Higgins and Butler and constructed her narrative around pre existing material. She used Higgins as her first hand source while also recording how Butler was taken prisoner and thus ensuring that the narrative would have resonated with Hartlip and his colleagues. However, as she was drawing on a first-hand oral source, she had to carefully structure the narrative to emphasise her own authority um, as writer and Higgins's authority as reliable witness. In order to explore how she achieved this, an understanding of the narrative is needed. So that's, that's the, the letter she wrote, Samuel Hartlip. Um, so Ranless started by stating that the Irish Dr Butler resided in Paris and lived in a lavish house, despite Butler not having any visible estate to live off. It was believed that Butler had the philosopher's stone, so the Irish Dr Higgins decided to become Butler's servant to learn the secret. Once Butler's finances ran low, they decided to travel to Orion to make more gold. However, before leaving uh, the city, Higgins learned that Butler was taken by pirates as a boy and sold to the Pasha of Tunis and it was here that Butler managed to steal the stone and learn its secrets. After learning of Butler's past, the pair travelled to Orléans with 300 weight of lead and began to melt down the metal, working only at night. When the mixture was ready uh, for the stone to be added, Butler asked Higgins to travel back to Paris to give Butler's family some money. Realising he was being deceived, Higgins pretended to leave, only to spy on Butler the next night. As Butler was about to use the stone, Higgins unfortunately fell and alerted Butler to his presence, causing Butler to flee. Back in Paris, Higgins had Butler arrested on suspicion of forgery, but when Butler's gold was tested, it was found to be real, implicitly proving that the stone worked. The narrative then ends with Butler fleeing France and travelling through Spain before being killed in a shipwreck when trying to make his way to England. So at the start um, of this narrative, Ranla states that her father told her that Butler was a poor Glover's son who lived near Bandon Bridge in Ireland, in which country this man was born. Here she is drawing on her late father's authority of Earl of the Region uh, to assert that Butler was not only from the same country as Ranla but also from the same county, albeit a neighbouring town. She then directly follows this up with the assertion that she heard all the information that follows First hand, from the reliable Daniel Higgins, which is implied through his being an Irishman and a physician. Through the combination of these two, t- these two statements, Ranlough was able to assert herself as the key authority on the subject, as not only was she a fellow county woman of Butler's and a fellow country woman of Higgins's, but she was the only person to have reliable information on both Butler's roots and his encounter with Higgins. However, merely men- mentioning her father and Higgins was not enough and so Ranlett included circumstantial evidence, her father's actions, and a defence of Higgins to ensure her authority was not challenged. While she only mentions her father explicitly once, she evokes his authority throughout by implicitly weaving his his activities and knowledge of events in Ireland. By having Butler uh, taken by some pirates belonging to the Barbary coasts, Randler was tying her narrative into the ongoing cultural fear of Barbary pirates and implicitly suggesting that Butler was a victim of the greatest example of Barbary corsairing to affect Ireland, the attack on Baltimore in June 1631. So, in June 1631, Algerian corsairs, led by Jan Jensen, who was Dutch by birth but had converted to Islam in the mid 1610s, attacked Baltimore in the dead of night, targeting an area known as the Cove. Very little is known about the attack itself, aside from a report written from Kinsale three days after the event. In this report, the author states that on the 20th day of June, betwixt the hours of one and two in the morning, they landed their men who divided themselves, some to one house and some to another, and so, on a sudden, surprised all the houses on that part of the town, which is called the Cove, to the number of twenty-six and carried with them, young and old, out of their beds to the number of 100 persons and two they killed. We know that most of the victims ended up being slaves in Algiers due to a report from James Frizzle, a consul based in the city, which stated that of the 390 captives in Algiers, 89 of them are women and children taken lately from Baltimore. By implicitly referencing this attack, Randla was able to invoke her father's authority as he was known to have been politically active in the the events leading up to the raid and was especially active in its aftermath. In February 1631, just four months before the raid occurred, Randall's father wrote to Lord Dorchester, the Secretary of State in London, to pass on an intelligence, intelligence report that the Islamist forces of the Turkish Empire were about to launch a huge invasion to one of the ports of southwestern Ireland and he argued that the ports of this region should not be left unguarded for Turks to lay eggs in. Des Aiken argues that Boyle believed the larger ports of Cork or Kinsale were the actual targets, but it is clear his intelligence was somewhat accurate. In the aftermath of the event, Cork wrote to the Privy Council, asking them to investigate ways to free the captives, and followed this up the following February, when he wrote a six-page report in which he placed the blame for the raid on Captain Hook and Sir Thomas Button, before stating that he had heard reports that the Turks had planned a larger-scale attack to occur the following year, an attack that never materialised. As Ranelagh was living in Ireland at the time of the raid, it is likely that she would have heard about it from her father, and thus subtly weaved her knowledge of the event into the narrative, especially the points that could be attributed to her father in order to strengthen the circumstantial evidence and her authority as writer. Throughout, Ranla also ensured that Higgins was constantly seen as an admirable and thus reliable character. The clearest example of this is how she sidesteps the issues surrounding service. As Butler volunteers his service upon the promise he has taught the alchemist's secrets, service could be said, uh, could said to, be, to mean voluntary or unpaid assistance lent to another person that was willingly chosen and upon the provision of certain requirements being met. Ranle was carefully to explicitly assert as much when she stated that that to get the skill of that great secret from him, Higgins was content to become his servant, and he entertained him upon the condition of teaching him his skill. Furthermore, the terms of contract are an extremely important inclusion, as there was a real fear surrounding the trustworthiness of servants. Elizabeth Rivlin argues that service carried connotations of performance, and thus, the performance might conceal the intent of that individual, a fact which meant that practitioners of service were open to charges of duplicity and inauthenticity. There are several examples of this in the drama of the time, including Caliban in The Tempest, who plots with Stefano and Trinculo to steal Prospero's books and batter his skull or punch him with a stake, and Mephistopheles in Dr Faustus*, who continuously manipulates his new master throughout the play. Due to this possible duplicity and Rannell's need for Higgins to keep his status as a reliable narrator, he could not be seen to be betraying his master. Thus, Rannell ensured that she emphasised that Butler clearly broke the terms of contract before Higgins spied on him. Higgins, who presently suspected why he was sent of this errand, told him he knew it was to rid of him whilst he should do his great work, minded him what condition he came to him upon. Thus, even though Higgins employed the crafty act of spying, Ranla had already ensured that his honourable status would be maintained, as he had reverted to being the reliable physician, rather than just being Butler's servant. She simultaneously protected his reputation by ensuring that the crafty action took place in a contested space, and she was clear to highlight that Higgins had the implicit permission of the owner of the inn where they were making um, the gold. Uh, having prepared his hostess to let him in when he should come and place him in a little room through the partition whereof he made a hole by which he could look into his master's working room. This permission is then emphasised by the hostess proving true to Higgins when being interrogated by Butler. Thus, while some readers might have mistrusted Higgins, their fears are counteracted by Butler's duplicitous actions alongside the hostess's support of Higgins over Butler ensuring the reliability of the narrative is maintained from start to finish. So Rannell's narrative had the desired effect, as Hartlib included it in a letter uh, ma- uh, that made several references to adepts in the Philosopher's Stone. This was Hartlib's letter to John Winthrop the Younger, dated the, uh, 16th of March 1660. In this letter, Hartlip discusses how he has heard that there are people who are attempting to challenge Glauber's experimental approach before going on to state that he heard that a confirmed stone in the bladder cannot be cured by the philosopher's stone. Ranela's narrative's inclusion in this letter shows that it was being engaged with in an intellectual way, and her ideas were being accepted and integrated into the the wider discourse. Thus, due to her rapport with Hartlib, it is clear that Ranela had successfully tapped into the information that ensured the material's positive reception. She was able to meticulously draw on the key motifs of the transmutation history in order to ground the information in an accepted genre. She also presented this material in a logical and accessible format and was able to maintain authority through the use of her connection to Ireland, local knowledge and careful handling of the narrative. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tutorstuartireland.com.